there is hope for uh, traditional media and especially for the press. Um, if you want to start by the global picture, um, you know, one should take the New York Times, uh, which is, you know, the leader in, uh, uh, you know, uh, transitioning uh, a traditional paper to, to, to a digital business, uh, digital uh, media. Mm-hmm. And, and what they've been doing basically shows that there is a way. They've been charting a new course for uh, traditional newspapers and for traditional media. And they've shown that basically um, what matters is the value that you bring as, uh, as a journal, as a newspaper, to your readers. And that value is content more than uh, being an advertising platform. So as long as you bring the proper value to your readers and that they're ready to pay for it, well, then in that case, there is, there is hope and there's a lot of potential. So this is what the New York Times has done and a lot of other newspapers have been doing that. And this is on our small limited scale, this is what we're trying to do here in Beirut. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. As a sort of individual reader, I'm, I'm happy to see familiar names joining Glorian Lejour. So they've been on the Lebanese scene and they're well-respected journalists, uh, some of them from the Daily Star and some others. But I, I some familiarity, I think, uh, makes an amateur reader like myself more eager to, uh, to read and, and subscribe and, of, of course, pay. And I'm glad you brought that up from the beginning. Is that really the way forward? Advertising aside. And I know you sort of you focused in on content, and that's the sort of issue at hand. And then there's ways to monetize, but is that now the backbone, or, or for that matter, even the lifeline for traditional media, so that it's not shared without sort of pay that you need to pay to get premium content? Do, do you see it that way? Absolutely, mm. it's not the only source of revenue, mm. um, uh, apart from some specific, uh, uh, you know specialized outlets yeah but in in general it, it's definitely going to be the backbone of uh of you know of, of of the new the transition of traditional media towards uh digital and and this is what we're seeing kind of everywhere and it's it is succeeding now it's it's hard because what happens is that it's definitely not as uh, uh profitable as the former the old uh, business model used to be you know, before we, everyone used to have, uh, uh, you know, a, a market that was kind of established with, you know, distribution channels that were established. And then you had advertising and advertising is, is you know, 100% margin. You just produce your newspaper and then you get advertising on top of that. And it generates right. a very substantial source of revenue. And that source of revenue has not disappeared, uh, but it has, I mean, for us in Lebanon, it's very hard. So it, it has shrunk a lot. Um, outside 
you know, in the Western world, uh, it has decreased a lot as well, but it hasn't disappeared. So there still is some advertising revenue that, that you know, helps uh, finance the, the, the newspapers, but it's not, it's not as important as it used to be. So now it's just kind of a side revenue and the backbone is definitely paid, uh, you know, subscriptions basically. And I, I apologize for this. This is a bit of a silly question, but when Lorient Lejour goes English, and I saw the launch date was just last week, it was the 15th, if I'm not mistaken. I yeah. was excited and I apologize. This sounds silly, but I went to my phone to read Lorient Lejour's English edition. I had no expectation for a physical copy of the English edition. Is, is there a physical copy? Or is that being sort of sidelined altogether and it's strictly digital? So there is no physical edition for English. There mm. is one for French, obviously, right. that we're yeah. keeping and that we will sustain as long as possible. And I think that it still has, you know, several years, possibly decades to go. Mm -hmm. um, but but in English, uh, you know, a print version would not make sense at all. So this is why we didn't go, we didn't publish any print version. May I ask you though, and I this for me it's very curious terrain. Why does it make no sense today to print an English edition? Is it simply that the English speaking or English reading audience will not want to buy a physical version, and that the French audience is still large enough and and maybe old enough to want that as opposed to digital format, or is it really just a financial decision that the audience may be less in Lebanon and more abroad? And therefore, you need to reach them somehow, and it'll be digital rather than a hard copy. So, so definitely. I mean, it, it's 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 a double this uh, a double reason for that. Mm -hmm. uh, first, which is um, the the influence kind of uh, uh, criteria, which is you know, uh, if you're a media, you need to talk to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And the second reason is uh, the financial perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for the first one, obviously, if you're if you're in, on print, you can only, you know, distribute to, uh, you know, a limited market. And especially for us in Lebanon now, uh, first, obviously, so you have to kind of delete the diaspora from your targets because you can right. only target Lebanon. Yeah. And then even in Lebanon, uh, what is quite sad it, what, that is that we've seen the distribution channels shrinking a lot. Um, typically, you know, traditional outlets like bookshops, uh, libraries and stuff like that, they They've, they've kind of nearly disappeared uh, uh, from the streets. It's, it's pretty sad. But, I mean, I used to live in Jamaica at some point, even on Jamaica, which is, you know, uh, really, a, 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 you know, a street where you can walk quite easily, et cetera, where there's a lot of shops, et cetera. There, there was not even a bookshop. Uh, they, I was not even able to buy Lorient on Jamaica. Well, it's like the most francophone street I could find. So, <laughs> so this is quite sad. So, yeah. so in English, it's even harder. And the market for, for print, in English is probably even smaller than French. Right. So, which is interesting because, you know, our traditional market in French was quite loyal and quite substantial, mm -hmm. obviously, relatively speaking, uh, while the English speaking market in print is, is even smaller. I think that the, the families that would be English educated would read more in Arabic, while those that were French educated would, would read more in French. So this already makes uh, the influence in the market like quite, quite small. Now, from a financial perspective, mm -hmm. both yeah. on revenue as well as on cost, uh, uh, it didn't make sense. Revenue, right. basically, because 
you know, there's no more advertising on print and, and, and an important part of the revenue generated by print was advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also because the revenue you generate from your print subscription or print sales in Lebanon would be in lira, while our main goal now in, a, in order to sustain ourselves and to, to, to generate some margin is selling subscriptions outside and generating fresh money revenue, basically. So that right. on print is impossible. And then so, from a cost perspective, you pay your, your paper in fresh money. So basically, if, you, if, you, if you're running the print business, your, your revenue is in local money, in lira, and your cost is in fresh dollars. So your margin has been like completely destroyed. So that's, that's one of the key issues with, uh, with the print uh, business now in a newspaper. You know, and if I'm overstepping, of course, you let me know. I'm, I'm, again, maybe it's born out of pure curiosity. Uh, would an English opinion page, or, or let's say even an English edition altogether, so analysis, opinion, and, and the like, everything, uh, even reporting, sort of the, the, the costs that involve with, with basic reporting, uh, would that be possible without subscribers abroad? Or is it really you need to have foreign subscribers today pumping in fresh dollar? And I mean it really in pure, in pure sort of uh, numbers that... Could something like this even exist without an international audience sending money back to Lebanon? So, so after the devaluation, I think it would not be possible. I think right. uh, yeah. you know, exporting has become a necessity. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll just you know take this occasion to talk about the business model because it's it's quite interesting. It it really what we've been experiencing as a transformation from a from a business perspective is kind of what Lebanon should or is partially going through, right. but not enough, which is yeah. we're, we've shifted from um, a, a business where we used to, to you know, import uh, uh, raw material yes. and sell locally. Right. We used to import paper because we don't even produce paper here. We don't produce ink or whatsoever. And, and all the plate and like, all the material to print, we didn't have. So we were importing the raw material and selling locally mm-hmm. while moving to digital. What's going on, what's happening is that we're producing uh, locally, you know, raw material is the journalist's brain and the developer's brains. Absolutely. So yeah. it's all local production, and we're selling outside through digital channels. So we, we've become a, a local business that exports, basically. And this is something quite, you know, drastically changing. And this has allowed us to to sustain. I actually find it both creative and almost. Uh, I mean, it's it's high time as well. And again, I I speak from my own side i had a tammuz be uh i mean maybe july or august and honestly i mean you're you're living technically in a war zone and everyone's sort of tight on on money and newspapers are printing less and less pages and i would go every morning to pick up i think just two pages of the Daily Star. It was just two pages, if I'm not mistaken, back to back, as opposed to the regular length, which I, I don't know how long it is today, but that they were still sort of forcing a, a paper to come out every morning. And for me that always, and I, I'm sort of dating myself a bit here, I thought that's sort of part of the story as well, that this is, this is a form of resiliency maybe, at least when it comes to local media, and I was proud to spend Alfen Lira every day on the Daily Star. And that was the only English, the regular English outlet. Uh, and to me, I guess, 
I still would like to see something on the bookshelf, which is what you were just saying, or even just in a anywhere. It could be any place. Just having that physical copy to me is still something that I hold dear. But I know that even myself, I'm looking at my phone when I read, whether it's L'Oreal du Jour or any outlet, I'm going to, to my phone. I don't have any uh, newspaper ready at the door any morning or I don't have a distribution sort of uh, thing. And I maybe that puts myself in a way, it's almost like a transitional generation that I know the value of holding the news and I know the value of having it by your bed when you wake up in the morning. And both, Absolutely. I think, both are at yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Ronnie, I'm not going to ask you where you were at, where you were buying the Daily Star and not Lorient in 2006. For that. Ah, we'll well, talk about that later. No, no, no. But, let me let me interrupt. But, let me interrupt. It's because okay. if I tried now speaking French with you, my listeners would dramatically go down, and <laughs> <laughs> I would I would only curse you with my French. I I know <laughs> uh, that that's why. To be honest, <laughs> no, but I I. No, I I, and I think I may have said this uh, in a sort of private communication. I was doing uh, Google translation for uh, L'Oréal Le Jour. So I would literally open the web browser and then have Chrome sort of tell me what was happening in, in English. And this is my flaw at the okay. end of the day. This is my as, flaw. As long as, you, as long as you read, you can translate as much as you want. It's fine. But you now know, you, you won't have to do it anymore. So yeah. Exactly. And you know what? Actually, this is a nice segue to talk about perhaps why you think that the time is right. And I'm curious, is this a consequence of seeing Lebanon on the news more and more outside of Lebanon? So the last year in itself has been very dramatic for Lebanese in Lebanon. But it's funny, people that I meet away from Lebanon the last recent months, they, they know pretty much what's going on. So it's on the news. The blasts, I mean, I think very few people on planet Earth missed out on that. It was a very widely covered story. But even the economic downward spiral and the ongoing protests, even Macron's visit, I was having dinner with, with people that have never been to Lebanon, but they know about Macron and they know about his visit. So Lebanon is on the news more and more. But is, is that part of the angling now that it's the right time to take Lorient Le Jour to a more english-speaking international audience or, or was it happening already that you were going to go english and it, it would have happened with or without the protests with or without this sort of dramatic news coverage so it's it's definitely the right time and uh, now it's not something new i mean we've been planning that for a while i've been thinking about it for as 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 soon as i joined i joined the newspaper five years ago and since then one of my main projects was to uh, uh develop it and you know we've been discussing that with uh, our chairwoman, uh, Naila de Frege, and with the board and with the team, you know, uh, um, should we stay in French or should we expand? Right. Um, yeah. But the, the main, um, let's say, uh, thing that, that changed, the main switch that happened that pushed us to launch, uh, more than the news, it was the success of the business model, which is basically uh, a spike, uh, an increase in subscriptions. So, right. so you know, I've been pushing and wanting to launch for a while, uh, but the board and advisors and stuff were telling us, guys, go slowly. Because if you don't have a proper digital business model that is really working and that allows you to sustain, in that case, you can, you know, add, uh, you know, recruit the team and add some costs. But if you don't have a, a proper revenue model, then you're going to just collapse the whole business. You're just going to go bankrupt. So take your time, make sure that the French part works. And then once right. it's done, 
in that case, we'll we'll think about it and launch. But then, obviously, when that when the Tauda happened, uh, you know, subscriptions went up very quickly. We were already in, in in our minds. We're already like, okay, we're gonna have to go for English. But uh, but it it basically ex exploded from a you know interest, readership, subscription, audience perspective, and, and the diaspora was following very very closely. Uh, our Instagram, uh, Twitter pages just boom. Uh, and and basically, what happened is that uh, uh, in in November, or early December, I guess, uh, the Daily Star started having some internal problems. So I saw a lot of the team leaving, and I was like, we should not allow those people to leave because you know Lebanon losing Lebanon is already you know experiencing a massive brain drain, which might be uh, the worst problem that we have on top of all the other crises. It's probably the most uh, the deepest problem because it's the one that's going to affect us in the longest term. You know, you can solve the garbage crisis and probably, you know, fix the environmental part in a couple of years. But, you know, fixing the brain drain takes decades, you know, generations. So, so while seeing all those people leaving, I was like, we really need, so we really need to keep them here. So what, what happened is I just called them all and told them, look, let's sit down. This is how I met uh, Ben. Benjamin Red, who became our managing editor, mm. uh, and I told them, guys, uh, you need to stay here, and and we we were thinking about a project, so let's let's discuss it together and let's try to build something together. You know, since you brought up Daily Star, I'll, I'll go one step further. I, I remember those. I mean, it was sort of ad, it was expressed online, but by Ben Red and by Timur Azhari that that sort of the the pay wasn't satisfying or it wasn't satisfactory the, the the sort of delayed payments and there was this resignation and became a bit public and uh i actually was lucky i, I managed to do episodes with ben red timur azhari and uh joseph habush i think was the editor is that i hope i had his name. yeah I think he was one of the reporters of the daily sorry guess or editor yeah. yeah he was a maybe a desk i i don't remember the exact title but the, but they all left and it crossed my mind that there must be something, there must be an alternative here. Otherwise, it's sort of the landscape will be altered fundamentally. And it actually surprised me. I thought the Daily Star was going to go. I really thought that it was sort of on its way out and that it lingered and it's still there is, was a bit surprising. But it, it seems right that there should be uh, at least a friendly competition in this space. And I'm glad Lorian Lejour is the one doing it. There... Can you remind me, was there an Akhbar English edition at some point that kind of stopped, that they had a digital English section and they... Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. There's been, there's been several um, um, media that, uh, you know, media outlets that, that published in English online mm. uh, over the last years. There's been Now Lebanon, which was quite successful for a while. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was, and then <laughs> Al Akhbar launched English, Nahar launched English. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if other uh, Naharnet, obviously, also Naharnet, yeah. And you know, it's I, I'm embarrassed. I should remember. I used to contribute to now Lebanon on occasion, so it shows you how that's it's and it's some time ago. It's about twelve years ago or so that I last wrote a piece for them. But they all they all didn't sort of find a way to to make it through. Is it that Lorient Lejour already has a loyal base that it's well established paper and it's in a better situation? to do something like this rather than something from sort of that comes out of nowhere. And An An Nahar's English, I mean, it's, I think, probably a very 
small investment compared to the main sort of news. Nahar Net is, an, is sort of a strange beast. It's there. It's always there. And I search it every day. But I always think of it as sort of uh, 1990s software and maybe like, you know, a few kids that have been on, on an old web browser. <laughs> but it's reliable. It's reporting. It's reliable. And it's translated. Yeah. yeah. But is that is that really the magic here that you have an old institution that can try something like this? And if it doesn't succeed, it's fine because Lorient Lejour will stay regardless. Is that sort of... So how, it's, it's one element that allowed us to... to, to invest and to launch a new project. Um, if we didn't have this solid, loyal reader base, um, we would have not been able to, to transition uh, towards yeah. digital because that requires, uh, you know, it requires some money in order to be able to invest. You have to be robust. Um, and you also, yeah, you also need to have, you know, it, it's obviously much easier if you start and you're already credible and you already have a, a reader base. Right. But but that was clearly not enough. You know, it's it's a totally different um, uh, way to operate, way to write. It's a different business model. I mean, the, your revenue sources are totally new, so it's not easy at all to shift from print to digital. It requires a lot of work, uh, a lot of investment, and a lot of time. Um, if you look at the at, at what's been going on in in, in among the Western media, because this is you know the models that we're kind of following, um, it took them you know, close to a decade to do the shift. And that's for the ones who've succeeded because a lot of them have died on the way. I mean, if you, in the US, there's, uh, you know, thousands of newspapers that have disappeared. You know, every town used to have its local newspaper right. and those ones have, have died and that's a total disaster for local culture, for local transparency, accountability, information, uh, communities, etc. But those who succeeded, it took them, you know, the, 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 the New York Times was in a very bad situation, I think, um, uh, at the, in the late 2000s. It was probably, I think, uh, Carlos Slim, uh, the Lebanese-Mexican billionaire, invested in the New York Times, I guess, in 2010, around, you know, right after the financial crisis. And it really became profitable and successful around 2016, 2017. And now it's, now it's doing great. And still, you know, it's, its profits are not huge. So... It's, so it, it's, it, it takes a long time. So for us, it was kind of the same. We started shifting around 2014. That was before I joined uh, at the time of, of Naila and the whole team. They started, uh, they put up a paywall for the first time on the website. Right. And I think yeah. we were probably one of the first websites, uh, news websites in the region to put up a paywall on, 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 on the whole content, not just mm -hmm. on you know, some specific. And this is where our digital transition started, but that was clearly not enough. Then we had to rethink our strategy to learn how to monetize content, to learn how to uh, market that, learn all the, you know, the news e-commerce uh, operations, and also learn how to tell stories, how to do digital journalism. So, you know, uh, live news, uh, uh, special right. formats, et cetera. So it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of work and it tends to take a lot of time. But that digitized content or di sorry, digital friendly content is really impressive. And sort of the New York Times, I think, is doing outstanding work. That it's not just a newspaper anymore. It's almost like a, it's, a, it's a news source that fits every sort of format. And I mean, the, it's very, very high quality. And, you know, also something else, the way the paywall shows up, I think, is very important. And I like the way it shows up in L'Oréal de Jour. I'm not a big fan of how it shows up in other outlets, sometimes even the Daily Star. It's sort of, 
it makes you reluctant to subscribe and pay. And I think that's it's maybe there's an art there almost in, in ensuring that once you pay, you're getting something worth your money. And I absolutely yeah. U- UX is very important. So user experience and and design is very important. Uh, typically, that's that's some of the of the points we've focused on a lot and we've invested a lot. So we we went to Paris uh, for the first time like four or five years ago to search for the top uh, uh, specialized design agencies that would do only media websites. Mm-hmm. And we picked the, the best ones from them and we started working with them. So I think, it was yeah. obviously much a bigger investment than if we had done it in Lebanon. But unfortunately, we couldn't find uh, top-notch designers based in Beirut. So we had to go outside to get them. And But also that, I mean, some of the shining stars that are involved now are very familiar with alternative media. So whether it's Ben Red or anyone that sort of has access, and it's not just social media. I mean, he has his own podcast as well, the Lebanese Politics Podcast. That they kind of, they they're familiar with the ways that sort of traditional old media doesn't operate. It's not just sort of standard newspaper stuff, and it makes yeah. someone like me excited to see what's in store. Yeah. At the end of the day, what matters is the quality of journalism, yeah. the quality of your articles and, and of, the, of your content. So the reality is that, yes, there is, um, you know, specificities for about digital, me- about digital journalism, you know, uh, typically live news, obviously video, if you want to do quality video, which we don't do. Um, right. yeah. uh, there are some specificities, but what really matters is is the quality of your piece, no matter uh, the, the the format, no matter uh, the outlet, is it you know print, digital, magazine, online, uh, Facebook, etc. So, if there is a great piece, a great uh, reportage, a great investigation, a great opinion piece on print, I can assure that this piece will also succeed uh, online. Right. You might have to tweak a little bit, you know, the titles because print titles and web titles are generally a bit different. You might have to add some links and and some keywords, et cetera. But overall, what really matters is the quality of the piece, and that does not depend on your on your outlet. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question that I asked Nayla Twaini during the protests. Uh, I asked her about a Nahar situation, sort of dealing with a very newsworthy subject and also having to challenge other forms of information that are not always accurate and maybe even the attention span of the consumer, the sort of... How, how much reading someone is willing to do right now. I, I'm curious, and I appreciate your emphasis on content, and I actually share that sentiment fully. And I, someone like me, I would rather see Lorian Lejour sort of posting something rather than an, an anonymous name with, with information that's unreliable. But how does Lorian Lejour challenge that? Because I even hear sort of whispers of misinformation, and it's not just Lebanese diaspora, it's anyone, who's trying to maybe engage the moment that they've seen something that's just not true, but they share that information. And yeah. it's sort of, it's your job to maybe fact check your friends or fact check somebody who thinks that they know what they're saying and sounds accurate, but it's not there. How do you deal with that? Is there, or even maybe a, a more basic question, is there a way to deal with that to begin with? Because that's something that shows up on your WhatsApp or even sometimes on Twitter. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to, uh, to yeah, to admit that it's something that personally made me completely crazy during the, the Saudi <laughs> during the revolution, right. and now recently after the explosion, you know, the yeah. number of, of you know, un, un, 
unbased, uh, unfounded uh, theories that were circulating. Just and you know, sorry, I'll just interrupt you. I'll just interrupt you. Even when it's a horrendous event like the blasts two months ago, you you that's the moment you don't want misinformation sort of infecting your your view. And I saw it spreading like wildfire. So so I'm I'm, I'm glad you said it made you go crazy. You're sort of involved in this world directly. How how do you cope? And how is there a way? To deal with this from from your side from somebody in, in traditional media there definitely is a way um and we've been trying to 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 you know emphasize uh, that as much as possible so uh what our what our team does uh especially you know our our, our, our chief editors uh in french emily sueur elie fayad sahar latar at le commerce du levant they they spend they train the team to focus on, on you know verification fact checking as much as possible so uh, every every time there's a claim that that they hear they see on social media etc our journalists uh, uh, focus a lot on you know making sure that this information is is right is proper they're gonna check it and double check it and, and see various sources before they publish anything um, because this is what differentiates us uh, from other sources from what can be shared in social media, from you know WhatsApp messages, etc., or even from some media outlets that are not as uh, thorough and not as you sure. know, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, conscious on, on on verification. So we spend a lot of time on that, on that, and this is also why why we were able to make our readers pay. It's because they know that there's a lot of work behind that. There's always you know a journalist, and then then there's a layer of editing. And sometimes two layers of editing behind an article that's written. So, so there clearly is a lot of work that's put inside to to make sure that we're we're not sharing fake news. Now, fact checking by itself has become, uh, you know, a, a kind of a standalone activity, mm. Um, mm. which we are not uh, doing yet fully. In a sense that you've got some uh, some newspapers, some news outlets, uh, and especially some news wires like AFP. Uh, Agence France Press uh, that have launched teams that are dedicated to fact checking. So you know the New York Times has, Times has that as well. It's called the Upshot, I guess. Yes, right, right, uh, right. And these yes. have basically full teams of journalists that spend their time checking and fact checking assertions uh, by politicians or you know information or rumors that have been uh, uh, circulating. And this is something very useful. But it's also quite costly and quite difficult. So it's on our roadmap. Inshallah, one day we'll be doing, uh, you know, full-fledged fact-checking with team that with teams that are dedicated to that. But it's it's a bit, uh, you know, it's 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 on the road ahead. Let's say. And is this sort of the let's say the um, maybe ethics is the right word here? I'm not sure that that the the pay the the, the subscriber the one anyone willing to pay is that sort of any newspapers today, their ability to avoid clickbait, that you're not drawn to catchy sort of uh, headlines that would lure a reader that's not entirely accurate or even reflective of what's happening, that L'Oréal Le Jour can simply dismiss that stuff and it's getting its money and therefore it can focus on content and not need to sort of get click, 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 click. Even though there is an advertising stream, but it's as you said earlier, it's not sort of as important as the subscriber fee. Is that the way to do it? That you're sort of you're pushing away the tendency to sort of lure people in for for perhaps the wrong reasons. Yes. Exactly. And what's good here is that um, 
the ethics blend well together with uh, the business in the sense that mm, yeah. not only from an ethical and from a, a purpose perspective, you know, from uh, journal our journalistic values and our mission, uh, we, we knew that we didn't want to do too much uh, clickbait, you know, it's not our focus. Our focus is quality news, you know, help the reader, help the citizen understand what's going on uh, in the world around him. Mm-hmm. So that was our purpose. And at the same time, we realized quite quickly around 2013, 2014, that actually uh, online advertising, which was kind of directly linked to clickbait, would not work and, and or not as well as, as expected. So the money generate, generating by clickbait thing was very low. Right. And at the same time, it was kind of destroying and affecting your brand, your yeah, brand exactly. equity and your credibility right. a lot. So. So we were losing. Uh, if we if we were to do that, we would have lost on all on all uh, aspects basically. So we quite quickly. Uh, I mean, we never went for clickbaiting, but it, we pretty quickly, you know, put it aside completely and and said we're obviously not going there. We're going to focus on quality, on building, uh, you know, a unique relationship with the reader, making sure that you know we're talking to the reader, we're understanding what he wants, we're making sure that you know we're also getting the content in the best way, in the best format possible, be it a newsletter, right. be it a push notification, be it an Instagram photo, or just a, a normal article on the website, uh, making sure we get the article in the best way possible to him and that he is interested in this article and that, and that, and that at the end of the day, he's ready to pay for that. And, and the big difference between this model and, and the clickbait model is also that in this model, you focus on a smaller audience. For us, we're talking about, you know, dozens of thousands of people that at the end of the day will be potential subscribers. Right. If you're talking clickbait, you're talking about millions of subscribers. So, you know, 10 or a hundred times more, yeah. but, but those people that would just come, you know, uh, randomly on your website and then not come back anymore. And right. those people for us have actually no more value. So we really focus on the ones that are interested and the ones that at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day will be ready to pay. But I appreciate that quality and content emphasis emphasis over clickbait and it gives you that direct relationship with the reader that you can perhaps even rely less and less on advertising revenue that it almost becomes in a way it's it's sort of like you found a direct line and if they're not happy they're not going to pay but if they're happy they will pay and it sounds like enough people are paying which is always a good news or a good sign and yeah. i uh, yeah. i'm going to ask you maybe a slightly more personal question here uh I was lucky that it must have been days after the blasts, maybe maybe within a week, I spoke to uh, Julie Kibbe, a Lorient Le Jour uh, reporter. And I mean, I think it came up halfway through the conversation that she wasn't at her home. She was someone else. She was somewhere else. And uh, she wasn't able to go home because her home was destroyed. And uh, she shared a photo of what her apartment sort of I mean, horrifying images that we're all familiar with now. Uh, it, it struck me as sort of, this is a, such a huge challenge to be f- in physical harm's way, reporting for a news outlet during a crisis, and then a blast that almost kills you as a result. And yet you're still sort of trying to portray the picture as it is. And I wonder if that sort of, this may be a bigger question about objectivity that can 
you as a reporter or even a you know executive director or anyone involved right now in the news business with what's happening in the last year and, and really the the pain that we're going through right now is it even possible at this point to offer sort of a variety of views of what's happening or are you naturally sort of leaning towards a particular set of views that perhaps may not fully resonate with everyone, but it seems to be sort of the, the healthier way forward. And I'm being very careful here because I don't want it to seem like it's just sort of a decision between interviewing protesters about what they think and politicians. I mean, maybe more broadly, is there a way to approach the subject as an objective person right now in Lebanon? Is that even even possible? And I and again, I knowing that maybe certain newspapers have a set of views built in. And yeah, that, I mean, it's so, so it's yeah. it's not only it's not only possible; it's essential mm -hmm. to to give as varied as diverse perspectives as possible on a topic. Uh, I think it's 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 essential, in, especially in these times. Um, because it's we're living critical times uh, where we sometimes lose, um, you know, uh, lucidity, uh, and we need to kind of take a step backwards and understand what's going on. So, definitely having very various perspectives that are not the same is something essential. Sure. And this is the reason why we launched our opinion pages uh, three years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have, you know, a dedicated opinions uh, section. Mm -hmm. um, we've launched it three years ago. It's 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 doing really well. And what this has allowed us to do is that it, it's helped us become not just a newspaper that tells the news as we see it, but also uh, uh, you know it's helped us become a platform for various opinions in Lebanon. This is what we want to be. Our core mission, our core project, is investigate our failure as Lebanon as a system and. At the same time, uh, reflect on how to build a better country for all, for all its citizens. So, on reflecting, on investigating about our failure, and at the same time, on uh, you know reflecting on how to build a better country, for both having diverse opinions is something essential. So, our you know our opinion pages are going to be something essential for that. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. when when you talk about uh, uh, you know the Thawra, etc., obviously, I mean we're not. I'm, I'm not personally a journalist and I'm not personally covering the news. You know, I leave the team to do that. And I, 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 my role is to defend their editorial independence. So I'm not mm. going into that. But obviously, I live and I work with them all the time. Um, and obviously, we are not, we are not uh, you know, uh, uh, that, how do you say it? We're, we're affected by what's going on and we have political views. Every journalist you know, he is objective, he has to, the, the journalists have to stay uh, at a certain distance from what's going on, but at the same time, they, they have feelings, and a lot of them have been, you know, covering the protests, and when, when you're covering the protests, you cannot just stay completely indifferent. So, so and, and we're, at, you know, it's, it's interesting, because at the same time, we've got, it's a bit of a, of a mix, we, we, on the one hand, uh, we are trying to stay, you know, as distanced as possible and as objective as possible while covering the news. But on the other hand, uh, what drives us is also our commitment to our mission, our purpose, which is also building a better country, or at least you know thinking on how to build a better country and investigate on, on what has failed. 
So we're also driven by this commitment, by this uh, uh, you know willingness to also to see this Tauda succeed. I mean, this is what's clear is that the huge majority of our journalists were definitely supporting the Tauda uh, uh, on a personal view. This is very clear. But I think okay, and I I hope I'm saying I'm hoping I'm asking this the right way. And I let's say these sentiments are shared, and a journalist, a team of journalists, sort of is more or less on supportive of the ambitions of the average protester over the past year. Uh, is it possible at this point to even entertain somebody who is fully opposed to the protest movement in a way that you would treat somebody who is supportive? In, in other words, are there are there red lines when it comes to the last, let's say the last year, since October 17, 2019, are there red lines that the newspaper doesn't cross? And that, that could be even maybe... Uh, speaking about subjects that were taboo before, but they're no longer taboo. And I mean, and it could be uh, of, of uh, somebody who doesn't want the protest movement to succeed. Would you? Would the newspaper be able to sort of entertain that view on the same level as somebody who really wants the protest movement to yield results? The newspaper can entertain uh, or at least inform anyone who wants to read the news and wants to mm. see things mm. as they are. So yeah. This is definitely our job and we definitely need to talk to everyone. I mean, our goal is not just to talk to some specific, uh, 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 you know, protesters or only uh, that group of people, etc. We need to be as open as possible and to, and to, to talk to everyone. And, you know, our news is based on facts, on covering facts as they are. And then, explaining and analyzing facts so this can definitely uh, be understood and be read by everyone and it has to be that's our purpose right and then opinions obviously opinions are more yeah. uh, 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 clivant as we say in French you know it, 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 it there's it creates a bit of uh, discontent obviously because if you're if you don't believe in that opinion then you're you're, you're you know you're not going to be happy while reading it but this is the reason why we need to have diverse opinions, and this is we this is the reason why we need to also kind of open up. And and our mission also over the last our our role over the last years has been to open up as a newspaper, um, trying to bring as many people as many different views on our platform, and trying to make sure that you know a variety of perspectives are represented. So so definitely that also means talking to to everyone. You know, the without without being ashamed of, of your convictions right. and of what you think. Yeah. No, but the reason I bring this up and, and the reason I'm curious from your side is because I always thought that is a burden on traditional outlets. There's almost a, um, it's a, it's a built-in quality, which is unbiased, all sides of the story, reporting, fact-based, and you sort of dissect your opinions accordingly. And the alternative space or even sort of small, sort of small fish in the sea, or even someone like me who's sort of just on the fringe, let's say, I think there's no burden. You can sort of create your own, uh, you, you draw your own lines. And then you have sort of, uh, sort of alternative media that really took off, at least in the last few years. And I spoke to Jean Asir uh, recently. Yeah. About megaphone megaphone, yeah. And there's sort of, they're they're, doing a job, yeah. yeah, and they're unashamed of where they stand. And it's sort of, it's built in. And they have their reporting, but the reporting, I mean, it's sort of like you take this as a, a, a group of students or whatever, youth, 
that are fully supportive of radical change. That burden doesn't really, or at least from my understanding that traditional outlets don't do business that way, that it's it's always sort of a hands-off and then the opinion, which is what you said, which is fairly new to Lorient Le Jour, is where you can sort of maybe have your your slant, if you will. But it's sort of, it's left alone as opinion. It's not sort of hard news. One point is that we've always had opinions, but the difference is that before it was in-house opinions, while now we've kept the in-house opinions, but we've added, uh, you know, a new uh, spectrum right. of, of, you know, outsourced opinions, which is very important because it brings very different perspective. Mm-hmm. Now about about megaphone, um, yeah, I mean they, they're doing a great job, uh, but definitely megaphone is more engaged, more uh, has a clear positioning on a political perspective than than we do in the sense that they they're really with the Thauda, pro Thauda, and they're kind of they became the media of the Thauda. Um, right, it's almost and, like and, ac- activist and activist news in a sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we. It's 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 a very important question for us, you know. How do we position ourselves? Uh, uh, I'll give you a, a quick anecdote. Uh, while think while designing the um, the the marketing ca- the communications campaign uh, for Lorient today uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we did it actually very very quickly. We were thinking with the with the, the communications agency to have a logo next to Lorient today, and, and the logo they they proposed that to. They offered us to, to put was they suggested us sorry was uh, a fist you know the Thauda fist right. uh, and 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 initially we were all like yeah let's go for that it's fantastic we'll put a big uh, Thauda fist next to Lorient today and we're gonna be, you know <laughs> and we're launching October 15th uh, we were rushing to launch before uh, before the Thauda's anniversary mm-hmm. um, so you know we were very close to validate that uh, and then my boss uh, uh, Naila the, the the chairperson. Uh, came to uh, actually, I saw she saw the the, the 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 visuals and the campaign by email, and she called me straight and she shouted at me like, <laughs> "What are you doing? This is not okay. We're not putting uh, this Thauda uh, logo on on next to Lorient, etc." Obviously, or or you know, ninety nine percent of the newspaper supports the Thauda. Uh, we are, you know, our values are with you know accountability. Uh, uh, against corruption, for building a, a nation and a functional state, uh, for changing the system, uh, against uh, this, you know, strong sectarianism, etc. Uh, however, it doesn't mean that we're the Thauda media. You know, we're we're, we're right. an independent newspaper, and we're yeah. not supposed to be officially pro or officially against the Thauda. So, take that fist off, and this is what we ended up doing. Did you try a, mid- a middle finger instead, just like a? <laughs> 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 slightly, slightly some, more of our some of our opinions actually lift this middle finger up because yeah because you know given the situation where we stand now uh, it's impossible not to do it anymore you know we, we've gone to such lows that you know we we're you know we need to be critical we need to be very critical and that's what we're trying to do i'm going to push one step further and i ask you because i i what you just said resonates with me that you're you're holding to your you're holding firm to your principles, and at the same time acknowledging that fundamental change is desperate, and whether it's ninety nine percent or ninety eight percent or whatever, it's an overwhelming majority of readers and 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 listeners and viewers and the like that that see eye to eye 
in that sense. And they want change. And then they turn to an outlet like yours uh, to learn more about what's necessary for change from the accountability and reform and transparency to everything, everything when it comes to the state. That said, are there issues today that remain, let's say, problematic for a newspaper like L'Oréal Le Jour? And I'll give you an example. Um, in the old days, it was almost, you had to think maybe 10 times before you would express a view about the Syrian regime. And then until 2005, that was still the case. And you had journalists being assassinated for expressing those types of views. But I think the journalism, free expression, that momentum, it won. And very few Lebanese journalists today, I think, are afraid to express their views about Syria's role in Lebanon. And this is all in hindsight now, but I think that's an, there's some flexibility there that wasn't there before. And I think that's sort of the backbone of any sort of revolutionary moment that you, you break free in that sense. Are there hurdles today that perhaps would prevent an outlet like Lorient de Jour to go too, too deep or too far in a particular direction? And I'm going to use maybe the, the classic example, let's say weapons comes up, the issue of Hezbollah's weapons. Is there really sort of a, we will talk about it and that's that, and we accept, we accept the risks that come with that? Or is there some hesitation on some sensitive issues like that? And by the way, it's not not necessarily just Hezbollah. It could be other issues. Let's say even religion, for that matter, is a sensitive issue. And I think it's sometimes it's sort of there's some hesitation to go there. Are, are there are there areas where Lorient Lejour deliberately says we can't go too far in that direction? We have to sort of step back a bit. And it may be literally for, and I mean this in, in brutal brutal terms, it may be for survival, that there's a cost that's been displayed before, and it's not something that maybe Lorient Lejour wants to wants to push. There definitely are some red lines, uh, and probably more so in Lebanon than in another country. Mm -hmm. um, and as you said, I mean, we come from, uh, uh, you know, a history of, 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 you know, a lot of journalist assass assassinations, uh, uh, you know, uh, goes back to Kamel uh, Lemrui, I guess, in the 60s. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, when child, I forgot when he was yeah. killed, but it, that, that's you know, uh, decades ago. Uh, he he started the war. He started the Daily Star, if I'm not mistaken, in the 50s. Absolutely. Yeah, so he's the first English. Uh, and, and then Hayat, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, is on it. Yes. Yeah. So so uh, he was he was assassinated, um, uh, and obviously you know much more recently, Samir Asir, who was also a journalist at. Lorient, he was the, the head of Lorient Express, the, the, the managing editor of Lorient Express for two yes. years, which was, uh, you know, very good, uh, high quality uh, um, magazine, cultural, I guess it, it was yeah. published. Yeah, cultural, yes. but also uh, talking about society and politics. And it was yes. very critical of Hariri and of the Syrian regime at the time, right. yes. in the late 90s. Jabran uh, Twaini, obviously, who was very close uh, to us also, you know, being uh, being the Nahar uh, chairman and, and CEO, because yeah. we were quite close uh, at the time, uh, yes. Lorient and, and Nahar. Um, so, I mean, there is definitely history of, of, of yeah, uh, you know, journalists being assassinated. That being said, uh, red lines have changed over time. Um, 
in the 90s, what was going on is for us, given that we were in French, first of all, uh, being, having, being in French uh, helped us you know, keep those red lines a bit more blurry. Mm, and right. That we were able to criticize the Syrians uh, more directly than if we were in Arabic because we were considered as less sensitive, they, you know. They, they didn't have their best red, so they couldn't and, <laughs> and absolutely, and Syrian officers, I guess, were not, not you know, fond of, of, of learning French. So some of them actually spoke French, but not, not, not all. So yeah. What, what at some point they actually, and that's an anecdote from Isa Ghraib, our former managing editor and, and, and current columnist, uh, um, once they, they, they sent uh, a, a high-ranking officer to the newspaper, to Isa, and he told them, look, you can uh, publish as much as you want, and you can actually even criticize the regime, uh, criticize us, but don't touch the Alawite community. Uh, so don't go uh, on the religion aspect, but yeah. otherwise uh, you can you can go ahead. So so you know this is where the red lines would uh, would would basically settle. And and in French they were obviously you know we had more room yeah. for maneuver than than in Arabic, mm -hmm. which is still the case today. I guess that being in French has helped us. Now moving to English is probably getting more sensitive also because we're reaching more people. Right. And I guess that now in Lebanon, there's more people understanding reading English than, than French. And when we go to Arabic, inshallah, we'll do also Arabic in a couple of years, that they will be, it'll be uh, clearly more sensitive uh, from a political perspective. Now, where the, where the red lines are today is, yeah. as you said, it's not Hezbollah's weapons. We talk about Hezbollah's weapons a lot, mm -hmm. every day, nearly, and, and we, you know, we criticize them mostly that's the reality of what we read in our newspaper that we're being very critical of Hezbollah's weapons uh, uh, overall which it's it's not like the newspaper lines but the majority of our of our editorialists of our mm -hmm. uh, columnists are, are, are critical of that but that's not a that's not a big issue uh, from a you know red line perspective however religion is probably more sensitive mm. um, and indeed, you know investigating religions religion and the how do you say the corruption that's also ingrained in our religious system is in our sectarian system is is something that is much much more sensitive and that uh, we're where we haven't uh, you know dug into it too deeply now one important thing on that as well is that in general it's more um, self-censorship rather than imposed official censorship Right. So, so does that come up though, where you have a journalist in any language who is there, there is a story and they sort of, they don't even bring it to the table because that's sort of, it, it's sort of taken for granted that religion, religious institutions are still just too sensitive to approach or, or has there been a case where it actually is brought up and there's a decision made, which is don't, don't, the story will not, will not materialize at the end. It's just not, uh, it's not appropriate. And I, it could be just an anecdotal example because I'm curious how, how it would sort of work and that there's a story and then there's sort of, we have to cut this or is it already done by you? You bring a journalist on board who will do that by default. So I, I don't think it has happened, uh, at least not recently at the newspaper. Um, um, so it's probably more self-censorship now. The reality is also that we are not, you know, 
as independent as we want to be, we're not as independent as, as other media outlets like, you know, The Guardian possibly or like Mediapart in France uh, that is famous for its uh, uh, investigations mm-hmm. because, you know, we, we, we have a lot of contacts. It's Lebanon is a small society, is a small community in Indian, especially the French speaking community is quite small. Right. Yeah. Um, and we're owned by four families uh, uh, and, and those families are, you know, people among which mine, uh, because my, my grandfather used to be the, the chairman and, you know, majority shareholder of this newspaper. And my grandfather used to know everyone in Lebanon, you know, so, so which is <laughs> politics for a long time, etc. And it's, you know, and the other shareholders, uh, talking about Michel Ibde, who passed yes. away last year, but the other shareholders uh, also have interests in Lebanon. So I'm not going to, you know, lie and say we are 100% fully independent, etc. We, we, we have, uh, uh, there, there, there are always some sensitive topics um, that, you know, that are not easy to publish in the newspapers. So my job has been to cement and to strengthen this line of editorial independence and to basically mm-hmm. keep mm-hmm. the shareholders away from that and, and, and tell the, the newsroom as much as possible with, with Naila, uh, our chairperson, and with the editors-in-chief and telling them basically, you guys write and we'll protect you as much as possible and as, as much as needed. So, so when there are sensitive topics, our job is is to hold the line, kind of hold the fort, and to and to prevent any sort of interference. Even though there might be some, you know, shareholder or advertisers' interest in that. Um, but until now, we weren't doing too much investigation. Now our job is to do more and more investigative work, especially with our English outlet with Lorient Today. Yes. So it's it's definitely going to get more and more sensitive, and this is where holding the line becomes uh, essential. And and maybe a, a bigger question here, just the way things have been developing in the last few months in terms of intimidation, that you do have stories of security, internal security or other types of security that sort of call in uh, independent journalists by and large. They, they tend to be sort of social media figures. They get phone calls and they're sort of invited for a friendly interrogation. And then for the most part, not, not entirely, but for the most part, they, they're let go. But it's still a, a form of intimidation that reminds someone like me from the years surrounding the Syrian withdrawal in 2005. Is, is that on the radar? In, in other words, uh, do, you, do you still find Lorient Lejour is sort of shielded from that to a degree, that you won't have that kind of intrusion? Because for, for me, that is, it, it seems like the whole cause is dependent on this type of rigorous, vigorous freedom of expression. And you just, you lose the battle once you start sort of coming back home and afraid to speak your mind. Absolutely. We're not uh, uh, protected from that. We, we're affected by, by uh, this behavior from the security forces and from the, the Muhabarat, etc. Yeah. Uh, we have you know, several journalists that were, uh, um, that were called into uh, you know, interrogations and, and, and that were questioned by the, uh, by the, um, by the security forces or, the, or you know, various sorts of Muhabarat. Um, uh, and... Uh, especially the the Malumeti, which is this uh, this 
this unit specialized in yes. what they called cybersecurity, but it, 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 I don't think it does much more than harassing uh, journalists in, in general, unfortunately. Um, so we, we, we've had some problems with those agencies. Um, we've also had some, some lawsuits filed by politicians against some of our journalists because right. of uh, you know, opinion pieces, editorials that were too strong. Yes. So we definitely have, have problems. Um, and, and this is something we're going to fight against as much as possible. I mean, we're going to defend our freedom of expression uh, as much as possible. This is, this is something essential for us. It's, it's the, you know, the core of our work. Now, you know, you also have to be, uh, um, how do you say, realistic. We're lucky compared to the rest of the region. I mean, anywhere else in the region uh, with, you know, freedom of expression is, is much, much lower than, than, than in Lebanon. We've seen it in Egypt uh, with an outlet like Mada Masal that are doing you know amazing job. Yes. Uh, yeah. Syria is even worse. Uh, uh, you know, the Gulf, uh, the GCC in general is also very bad from a free, freedom of expression perspective. So despite everything that's going on and despite the, the behavior of security agencies, we're still quite lucky to have that in Beirut. And this is also the reason why I personally believe that Beirut has a lot of potential mm -hmm. from a journalistic, from a media perspective. Uh, you know, we have, we're free to tell the news as we see them and to tell our opinion, to speak out. Um, and this is obviously a pillar, an essential pillar in order to build a, a proper, uh, uh, sustainable, decent media ecosystem. And, and we owe it to Beirut because Beirut used to be the capital of, of the Arab press and the capital of freedom of expression in, in, expression in the region. So, so this is also something that drives us to, to, you know, to sustain or, you know, to develop it and, and to, to stay true to our mission. I think that fight is existential. And I, I really believe that, and you just said it, the, the region's best writers and, and uh, journalists or anyone, and even, even communities that didn't feel secure, they would sort of rush to Lebanon, seek refuge in Lebanon. And that was the bastion. And I th I, I'd like to believe that despite all the pain and agony, that this issue, freedom of expression, will survive. And I, I find it to be uh, so fundamental. It's really, a, I, I don't think it's worth fighting if you don't have this uh, to, to, to help you win the battle. And um, I want to ask you, you brought up your own sort of, uh, your sort of family in history and, and its involvement in the newspaper. You know, I always forget. And sort of, it's my fault because I'm not. Uh, I hear Michelle Shiha's name all the time on this podcast, and it's always sort of coming up in more like almost like philosophy at this point. It's Michelle Shiha, Michelle Shiha. You should read Michelle Shiha. You should do this with Michelle Shiha, Michelle Shiha. I completely forgot that this. News I'm, I'm I'm moved to hear that. I'm I'm I'm, I'm no. gonna you know hear <laughs> no <laughs> no, but it's it's you know that name has come up endless times, and then. I always forget this, and it's, it's my fault. Lorian Lejour is a byproduct of Michel Shiha, and I hope I got this right. Is it George uh, no, Gabriel no. Naash and um, Gabriel Chabez? Sorry, sorry. No, Naash and Gabriel Chabez. Yeah. Right, which those are very important names too. But it's Michel Shiha, and then I forget that it's Lejour. That's his newspaper. 
and it's two pictures yeah. in one. Can you take me a bit as from from as much as you'd be happy to share? It? I don't have to go into the whole story. I know it's a, it's a very it's a it's a dramatic story, but but just the aspirations from the French mandate, these figures that championed an independent Lebanon. I mean, these people are in a way that's almost like the elders, if you will. Yeah. And they, I mean, they wanted to see Lebanon sort of <laughs> find its way forward. And this is from the 1920s and 1930s. Those aspirations from a century ago and where we are today. I mean, I'm trying to see, <laughs> could things at some point down the road, maybe in our lifetime, could we see a country that's actually functioning? the way those people would have wanted to see it and maybe beyond them, us, our generation that, that is desperate for a decent state. Not, and it's not like we're not aiming for the stars here. It's almost like at least a, a state that doesn't humiliate its people. And there's a population that has some positivity and some hope down the road, which is very hard to see right now. Are you betting on the future? And that you, you I, think, I think you're asking too much for me, uh, Ronnie. <laughs> no, no, no cause, cause, and I'm going to push you on this. I did not know that when, okay, your age, I know it's not, it doesn't uh, have an impact on your job, but you're young enough, I think, to have hope as a default option that you haven't seen too much tragedy with your own eyes, but you're also not young enough. In that sense, you're, in ex, you're, you're managing a newspaper. Uh, and you're also maybe seeing a year after this recent protests, you're seeing what's happened in the last year. So there's already that first experience of deep disappointment. Are you able to see down the road a, a, a country that is better rather than where we are right now? Or is there maybe a built-in caution? And this maybe comes with the terrain that you have to be very cautious and not have that kind of hope, at least when you're reporting on real tragedy. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just stick to my personal opinion here and not uh, represent uh, the newspaper because sure. everyone has its own uh, views. And, 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 and what matters is more what, uh, what the newsroom, what, what the journalists believe, what the, the editors uh, believe more than what I believe. My job is more kind of to safeguard the newspaper and to make sure that it strives, that it, that it, uh, that it, that it thrives, sorry, that it uh, sustains. Yes. But my job is not to, to tell my, my political opinion or what I believe. I, I, I leave that to, to the journalist. The but, personal. I'd like to know the personal. <laughs> but, but my personal perspective is, is, is quite simple. I've, I've stopped asking myself um, approximately six months ago, around April or May, uh, when uh, the Diab government started uh, failing, basically started kind of collapsing. Yes. At that point, I just stopped asking myself whether there was still hope or not uh, for the country, because it's it's um, it's too heavy a question for for us on a personal level. So so at least for myself. So what I started focusing on was more of you know a day to day battle to do what we can do, and do what we should do. And, and this has basically been, uh, for me, the, the, the battle for the newspaper and making sure that the newspaper, as I said, thrives and that as much as possible and that we, you know, tell the news, investigate, uh, 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 you know, 
debate uh, build as much as possible. And by building, it was also expanding, expanding to English. So those were uh, our big battles. And, and we're lucky to be in a, in a company, in an environment uh, that is at least where there is work to do, with, where there's real activity, where we have uh, you know, objectives, goals, and challenges, where we have something to, 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 to think about, and, 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 and where we have you know, a real purpose in our job every morning when, when we walk into the offices, which when we go reporting on the streets, which is not the case for a lot of people that have lost their jobs and that just waiting for one thing, which is to leave. At least, you know, here we have something to do, we have something to fight for. So, so we're lucky about that. Well, I, I mean, it's a very careful way of answering that question, which I appreciate. I know that, <laughs> I, I, I look, I share the, 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 I, I think of it as a fight as well. And I think purpose matters. And when things are very difficult, I think purpose matters all the more. And I do see it as uh, this expression without fear, I think is, it remains, uh, once that goes, I think I'd be very, very, uh, very pessimistic and unable to see uh, what lies in store. But at the moment, th this kind of uh, aspiration, I think is essential. And Absolutely. I'm going to I'm going to link uh, Lorient Lejour's English edition to this episode. So anyone that wants to subscribe, they can just subscribe, and I'll be subscribing myself. Um, I appreciate anyone willing to stay up this late to speak to me. I know it must be 10:30 now in Beirut, so I won't take too much more of your time. I'll just wrap it up by saying I'm a big fan, and I wish you the best. And it's, I'm glad to see an English alternative that's uh, credible and um, I'm looking forward. I'd like to see Daily Star survive. I think I think anyone who sort of has that sort of nostalgia and maybe depended on the Daily Star for many years wants to see it survive. I'm equally happy to see Lorian Lejour's English edition take off. So thank you so much, Michel. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ronnie. It was great speaking to you as well. And uh, looking forward to your subscription, definitely. If you give me a free subscription, I'll I'll buy one. <laughs> what we agreed on, but yeah, no, but we definitely need um, feedback and critical feedback. We need people to read us. We're still building. We we we're not, uh, you know, uh, we haven't reached our goal yet. I mean, this was just a launch. Uh, the team is still halfway through its uh, full composition, and and so we're really working on you know hiring top-notch journalists, uh, 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 you know, refining, understanding exactly what people are looking for uh, and, and developing our, our, our content, our production in order to meet the needs of our readers. So there's a lot of work and we definitely need feedback, uh, criticism uh, and, and discussion in order to, to improve. So feel free. My amateur understanding is that it's in good hands. So I look forward to Michelle. subscribing. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Ronnie. Thanks for listening, and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>